Hello, ladies and gents. For any regular listeners of my podcast, I'm back. Touch wood. Um, I have not uploaded for a couple of months now, and that is just purely down to new commitments. So I have been working two new jobs, one as the editorial assistant for... I believe the most read sports magazine in the UK in BBC Match of the Day magazine and also working on a freelance basis for BBC Radio Merseyside predominantly with the sports team who I cannot thank enough for how they've taken me under their wing um, and yeah I'll be producing the coverage of Everton versus Wolves this upcoming weekend. And little side note there. But this is just to say apologies for not uploading as regularly as I should have. Uh, I always aim to upload weekly. <laughs> and I think, I think it's been like two or three months now. Um, maybe even four, actually. I think my last one was Balagay last November. Um, but that isn't to say that, you know, that's not to say I've given up on it at all. Um I love doing this in the research and the preparation for this episode. Um, I've sort of rediscovered how much I do love doing my podcast. And as I've always said, it's something that I do aspire to do for a living maybe one day. So on a weekly and maybe even daily basis, because I surely love just sitting down and, and talking to people, hearing their stories and having deep, meaningful conversations um and today's episode is with someone who's been on the podcast before who i thoroughly enjoy listening to his stories uh, and his experiences of his extensive career in broadcast media uh, mr elton wellsby so i sincerely hope that you enjoy this episode elton wellsby i believe it's been over a year since we last spoke how the hell are you I'm very well, Max, thanks, yeah. Um, good. As an Evertonian, <laughs> not so good. <laughs> no, but in myself and private life, everything else is absolutely superb. Thank you. Brilliant. And yourself. Very... I believe you're working for Radio Merseyside a bit now. Yep, I've been very, very busy. Um, basically, in January, uh, it's just been a bit of a roller coaster. I've essentially started two new jobs. Um I'm working full-time for BBC Match of the Day magazine, which is aimed at a younger audience. So, like, really, yeah. kids <laughs> kids and teenagers, which, if I'm not mistaken, is <clears throat> the most read sports magazine in the UK, which was a bit of a surprise to hear. Um, very, so I've, been very I've been very blessed to, to get a job there. And also... I've uh, caught the attention of Radio Merseyside, so I've been working freelance with the sports team there as well. Good man. Well, it's a long road to the top, <laughs> but it sounds to me like you, you're going the right way. Thank you, sir. That certainly means a lot coming from someone like you. Um, <laughs> I mean, oh, keep the flattery coming. I'm all right. <laughs> <laughs> I but, love being... No, you certainly... Right. You deserve it, mate, given the uh, the career that you had, honestly. I mean, 
this is, as I mentioned to you, this is my first pod, podcast back in a, in a couple of months as I've been so busy and I'm, I'm very pleased that you've taken the time out to speak to me. So thank you for that. Oh, no. I appreciate no. it. Um, so I guess there are plenty of things to talk about, um, oh. but we can start. Yeah. We can start with the football club, which is often the bane of our lives. Um, Everton suffered their heaviest defeat of a dismal Premier League season, losing 5-0 away to Tottenham Hotspur. Could have been nine. Elton, vent away. The floor is yours. It could have been nine. I mean, apart from throwing in the second goal, which is maybe a bit harsh to put it in those terms, but Jordan Pickford had a great game. He, he, he... You know, he kept them out at the start of the second half. I, wow, this is Bleach Creek all over again. Oh, it was, it was, the defending was shocking. Um, Michael King should never wear an Everett shirt again. Mason Holgate in an emergency. But Michael King for the third goal, that was um, Harry Kane's uh, first goal. Keane was bullied by Harry Kane. He was pathetic. He made a half-hearted attempt to run back. He paused during that half-hearted attempt to appeal for offside, as did Mason Holgate, by the way. And, of course, Harry Kane finished it with a plot. Now, there is absolutely no point in appealing for offside anymore, because if it is offside, it will be revealed on VAR. So that was a wasted millisecond. I don't think he'd have caught him anyway, to be truthful. But at least look like you're trying, man. Oh, God. A lot of them. Frank said afterwards, Anthony Hol uh, Anthony Holgate, Anthony Gordon and one other, maybe two others, didn't give up. That means seven or eight outfield players gave up. Sounded like Brian Clough, wasn't it? <laughs> Right. It was embarrassing. So I'll I'll paint the picture for you, Elton. So I had to take my little sister to her football training, which was seven till eight. So you should have taken her to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. She could have played and she'd have done better. So we were finishing up at about eight o'clock and I was like, come on, get your skates on in the car, radio Mersey side yeah. on in the car. Um seemed like we had a competitive and relatively decent opening 10, 15 minutes. Yes, it was. Absolutely. So my, my question is, essentially, then we seem to just capitulate. Obviously, Michael Keane scores an own goal, then Son gets a second, and at that point, I just turned the radio off because I didn't want to listen to it anymore. Um, oh, I got word. I, I come in, put it on, saw that they'd scored the third, and then just downright refused to watch the rest of it my question is as pretty much mm -hmm. i didn't catch most the majority of the game was it everton playing so poorly or was, yes was it spares turning up and having a good game uh it was both although i i think if we hadn't have played as badly <clears throat> uh, so inept as we were last night, I, I don't think Spurs would have looked like world beaters, which they did, because we allowed them to. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, they were I... terrible. The midfield was shocking. As I say, the, the, the only guy, the, the outfield players for me that came out with any real credit was Anthony Gordon because, yes, he tried and he's getting a reputation of being possibly a little bit selfish. I mean, last night, who the hell is he going to pass to? There's only Richie who was worth his salt in terms of uh, putting in a shift. Mm-hmm. Uh, DCL was was just way off. I, it way off the page now. Whether that injury, I'd like to think he's not fit mm-hmm. because if it wasn't that. If it wasn't a case of fitness. Then it was a case of he couldn't give a shit. Now that hurts. That hurts as an Evertonian. Definitely. And my biggest bone to pick, as I saw with the third goal, is that we were playing with a very, very high line from the defence, which when it you... worked for 10 minutes. We did. We, 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 what we did for 10 minutes, possibly 15, up, well, all right, up until the goal, the first goal, we did well. We pressed high. We had the high line. Which is very, very dangerous against Tottenham against when you've got Harry Kane. Bears, you cannot play a high line against Bears. That that was my yeah. goal to pick. Especially now, one of the main reasons for that is is that Harry Kane, who's a great number nine, he can also play the number ten role. And it's like when he drops when he drops back into an advanced midfield position and starts slicing balls in behind our fullbacks, we were thinking, well, he shouldn't be doing that. You know, he's on number nine. Oh, we'll have to talk about something happier. <laughs> so, oh no, it was it was terrible. It, it was it was it was absolutely shocking, awful, disgraceful, disgusting. Um, yeah. yeah, I think uh, just to, just to finish my point off. <laughs> yeah, some some responsibility does, of course, have to lie with Frank Lampard for that decision to play a high line <coughs> when you've got back four of who was it Seamus Coleman who is way beyond his prime years he's not the same player it's a shame but you, you, it's a shame but you're right god bless what a player he was in his day but unfortunately just not have the same pick as he used to we don't owe him anything do we I mean 60,000 pounds he cost good heavens above exactly don't owe him anything what a player. And he shouldn't be he shouldn't be in the position he's in. His legs have gone. And he's never been the same since that awful tackle uh, that he received whilst playing for the Republic of Ireland. He's he's never been the same player since then. Uh, but at the moment he's he's totally exposed and let down by those around him. Yeah, and, and that brings me to the rest of the fence. Michael Keane and Mason Holgate in central in central defence. Not blessed with pace. They're, Clueless. They're, well, Clueless. I, I still Clueless. I still have a thread of hope for Mason Holgate. I think Mason Holgate has shown glimmers of a decent standard of Premier League player. Given his background, the, f- the fact that he came through at Barnsley, there are similarities to John Stones, a defender that I really did adore when he played for Everton. And I would hope, fingers crossed, touch wood, that Mason Holgate does eventually develop into that ilk of a player. But no. when, when you've put him, when you've got him next to Michael Keane, who Frank Lampard has come out in the media and said is has been unwell for a while. 
Um, I, you not. The best thing Holgate did was was the best thing Holgate did was nearly knock Keane out <laughs> when he when he cleared that morning hit Keane in the face, and after that it was they said oh concussion injury it wasn't. I just said <laughs> flippantly, oh, oh Keane's not come out, he's got a headache. Frank should have just said he didn't come out the second half because he was that crap in the first half. He was a liability. Mm. And that's the truth. Yeah. He was feeling well, my arse. Yeah, quite simply, they, they are quite inept at performing the duties of centre-half, more to my point, at playing a high line. Um, and then John Joe Kenny, out of possession. God bless, he's been, been played out of position a number of times in his recent appearances for the club and has shown uh, some sort of improvement have we seen from him in the past. And I think it, it's best, his best performances for Everton over a few years now uh, has been recently at left-back. Yeah. For me, he was the pick of the back four, which doesn't say much at all about the other three, by the way. But I would say that anyone could sort of say, well, I... I didn't do too bad there under the circumstances, but then it will be John Joe Kenny. Yeah, but at the same time, I don't think you can say I didn't do too bad there, but concede five goals. Um, I just don't simply think that's possible. Uh, no. so... <laughs> Listen, I'm picking up straws, and as Frank himself said yeah. after the game, no positives from that. From that game, but I'm just saying, out of the the backboard, John Joe Kenny was just about. Uh, was just about mediocre. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the I, others were far less than mediocre. It, it was, God, the naivety in that. I, I felt sorry for, for the thousands of fans who had to go and watch those misfits and cheats um, at Tottenham come back, and some of them had bad journeys by all accounts look you know looking at twitter today some of them have bad journeys one guy was saying he didn't get home till seven o'clock in the morning jesus maybe some of that was self-inflicted i don't know <laughs> but that's not the point i wonder whether those, all those fans were thinking god what we've spent you know uh, however much to get there to get in to have food hospitality whatever you want to call it i wonder how they were totting it up on the way back and thinking, and the players we've just been watching, um, probably the minimum any one of them would take home in a week would be £100,000. That is unacceptable, especially in the social climate in which we're existing at the moment. It is totally unacceptable. If you're going to get paid fortunes for playing football, fine. Good luck to you. But try. Mm. Play the football with some spirit. Play the football the way you care, the way the fans care mm. about the club. You put that into your game, and no one will argue if you just have a bad game and you're off form for a game. Okay, that happens in life. <laughs> some of the how they could. You're probably laughing, taking as you know what, saying, oh, well, yeah, we didn't do too well tonight, but that's another £100,000 in the bank. And in some cases, a lot more. I know that. Hmm. 
and possibly in the case of Anthony Gordon and John Joe Kenny, probably very little compared to some of the others out there. I think they're on something like 40 odd thousand a week, I think. I'm not, I'm not too sure. I'm not concerned about that. I don't care what you get paid, whether it's half a million pounds a week, whether it's 10,000 pounds a week, whatever it is, just go and play like it means something to you. And last night, it didn't mean anything to anyone, mm. apart from, as I say, Anthony Gordon, possibly John Joe Kenny. Uh, oh, it was it was terrible. Yeah, uh, as you. Oh, sorry, I'll, I'll just I'll let I'll let Richarlison off the hook. I'll let Richarlison off the hook okay. because he always tries. He always puts a shift in. Nothing worked for him last night. Having said that. The midfield never got a decent pass to him, et cetera, et cetera. One shot we had, unless you count Allen's near the end from, what, 35 yards, and it went 35 yards over, there was one of the shots, and that was Dominic Calvert-Lewin when he pulled a ball across the face of the goal, when he should have certainly hit the target. Now, whether Larice made the save or not, we don't know that type of thing. There you go. Am I ranting enough? Am I... You know, am I being too harsh here? No, no, it, it, it's the platform for you to do so out, and you, you know, you're very entitled. Mm. So, and as you've, as you've painted there, I don't find it fun, by the way. Oh, no, I uh, don't find, I don't find this fun, of course not. I enjoy talking to you and I enjoy getting things off my chest, yeah, but I don't find it fun because we're talking about a club I've loved since 1962, <clears throat> looking like the dog and duck. Right, because this this draws me to my next point, Alton. Because I, as you write, one of the points I think you've made very accurately there is, although the team may let them down sometimes, the fans certainly don't, given the following that we do have up and down oh. up and down the country. And one of the, I want to ask you about is right. I was born in 1998, so I did not, God bless, I didn't experience the relegation battles of the 1990s. So I wanted to ask you, is what we're experiencing today anywhere near or just as bad as what we went through in the 90s? Well, of course it is. Because it is. We, we realistically can go down. Yeah. And yes, we could, but for that sort of infamous game against Wimbledon, uh, we would have gone down that, that year. But yes, the only thing about this one is that we have enough points available to actually secure our status in the Premier League. Uh, that, you know, I'm convinced. I think we've got 15 points available at home um, for us to, to sort of hope that we win our home games because we've looked like winning our home games. Ah. <sighs> oh. And then it's the away games. I don't care who we're playing away from home. Play like that, we're going to get beaten. So the only points we're going to get on board are those at home. And I list. I think yes. Here we go. Wolves, Newcastle, United, Chelsea, Brentford. Five, six points. 
all tough games. All yeah. tough games. Every every game is tough. Every game is tough from here on in. And the pressure, certainly when we, we, we're next away from home, the pressure is going to be quite phenomenal. We need leaders. We need leaders out there. We need, we need people going to say to someone who maybe is not having a great game, but is trying to come on, you know? Yeah. Not go out like a shower of wimps. That's what I saw last night, a shower of wimps. That That is... That is the thing that does scare me, Elton, is that... I don't think we'll go down. You know, actually, don't, no, I, I don't know whether it's my heart ruling my head. I, I just, I've got the vibes, I've got a feeling, it's in my guts as well as my heart, that we will survive. <laughs> is that just because, yeah. Is that just because we've never been relegated before? Is that... Well, I've been, as you know, I've been watching Everton going, going to the old ladies since 1962, um, and I've never seen seen us relegated. So may, maybe that's part of it. I just can't envisage Everton in a division other than the top flight. I it just to me, it's it just totally alien. Now, maybe I'm being stupid. Because you hear of these, the clubs, big clubs in, in not that, um, you know, not that long ago in, in, in relative terms, Wolves, uh, what, Forest now, um, yeah. Aston Villa, Sunderland. you know, these clubs that have gone, literally went to the pits. Mm. Um, everyone's like, oh, they're too, too good, too, too big a club. They've got too much heritage. They've... They've got too much history, you know, to sort of end up in the second division. Hey, yeah, real. It does happen. Mm. My concern. It does happen. But as I say, I generally, I've, I've just got a feeling that we will, we will survive. And I can't apply, Max, I can't apply any logic to that at all, <laughs> other than that's what I feel. Now, whether that's feeling of, optimism it certainly is whether it's a feeling of realism i don't know <laughs> why am i laughing <laughs> it, it, it's absolutely terrifying to me it is it's absolutely terrifying oh it, oh, it is because when you when you you look at the individuals the squad and how much money we spent to accumulate this shower of dross it, it is frightening it is very frightening. But as I say, I whatever, I just got this feeling we won't we won't go down. Okay. So going off your feeling, I want to get your verdict on <laughs> the appointment of Frank Lampard as Everton manager because the last time very I, good. But last good. time last time I did a podcast, Rafael Benitez was still Everton manager. Now we've yeah, undergone, undergone the recruitment process and out of the candidates available, I do think that Frank Lampard was probably the better option of those that were available. Um, credit where credit is due. He gave an exceptional account of himself to the media, as always, as you'd expect. I think he's yes. spoken very well. He's a realist. He understands the situation that he's involved in, the immediacy of the situation that he's involved in, and how he is going to motivate this group of players 
to get out of this situation is so still something that I fail to see. Out of the seven games that we've played so far under Lampard, we've had three wins and four losses. Uh, the wins have been mostly emphatic, of course, the 4-1 at home against Brentford, the 3-0 at home against Leeds, and surprisingly the most difficult of those was the 2-0 at home against Bournemouth, non-league. Yeah, in the, yeah. um, mm. the three defeats have all been really underwhelming performances away from home, of course, with the <laughs> exception of Manchester City at home, which surprisingly, again, out of the bunch, was probably the game we gave the best account of ourselves. Um, Without a doubt. Goodison Park. But it, it's a hard question to pose because I think the, the short term is so daunting and so it, it, it needs addressing so immediately that the short term really is all that matters at the present moment. But do you think mm. the long term Frank Lampard's appointment will work out for Everton Football Club? Well, I'm just glad the Portuguese guy didn't get it because I thought he he did he, he talked about game as well and he, he talked about it on the Thursday before the Friday meeting, uh, the so-called meeting with with Duncan Frank and himself, um, you know, with Mashiri, um, and he talked himself out of it there, to be truthful. But even still, his credentials were were pretty awful. Frank's credentials as a manager aren't great, but he's not been a manager for long. And I think the likes of Mashiri, Bill, I'm sure it was Bill, by the way, totally against Benitez. Mashiri just overruled everybody and said, right, he's got it. Um, yeah. So I think of the, of, the, of the ones available at the time of the appointment, which was the very last day of January, um, I think Evertonians, I certainly did, breathed a huge sigh of relief that it had actually gone to Frank. Mm -hmm. um, Mourinho was spoken to, that I know, um, but he didn't feel, he wants to come back to the Premier, but he didn't feel that he'd actually made any kind of impression or good impression at Roma. So I think he felt he, he certainly had more work to do there. Um, I don't know whether we spoke to uh, anyone other than that, who are well-known in footballing circles. I don't know. But, I, I mean, we, we, don't forget, we got Ancelotti, and the world of football was astonished that we got Ancelotti. And it turned out what we got was a guy out of his depth in the shallow end. Mm -hmm. That was the that was the fact. Yeah. Yeah, he'd go and win the Champions League with Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, whatever. But actually forge a team to stay in the Premier League with players not of the quality that he's used to was just too much for him. Yeah. I he, I'll tell you what, when, when Real Madrid came to him. Um, and said, like, you know, he, he, he fancy coming back to us. Oh, he must have thought Christmas is a come up one. Yeah, I 
would agree with that statement on Carlo Ancelotti. I, I do feel like he revealed himself in a sense by in, in the manner that he left Everton Football Club. Um, a lot is spoken about that great start to last season where we were, you know, top of the league for, for a couple of months and then we were second on Christmas. Um, but ultimately, it was his team and his tactics that ultimately led us to finish in, what was it, 10th, 11th? Um, uh, which was... Listen, the last... We we didn't have a bad start under Benitez, you know. But apart from that, the last twelve months and a bit have been absolutely depressing. Mm. Yeah, without doubt. And, and once it became quite apparent that that, like Ancelotti before him, Rafa was also out of his depth didn't understand um, what was going on. It's been, it's been a torrid time. My admiration is not for, for, for Evertonians like myself who've been supporting the club for a long, long time and have seen great success. I was 63, the Cup in 66, the Championship in 1970, 1984 FA Cup, 85, <laughs> what a year. 86, Lineker's year, 87. should have been a lot better than it was. And then 87. So I've, I've enjoyed the highs. <clears throat> the, 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 my admiration goes out to those Evertonians who were born around about 1990-ish and onwards. Hey, it's been nothing but turmoil. and But they stuck with the club through thick and thin. I, it, I I really do admire them. It must have been so easy to I will go support someone. You know, can't can't be asked. <laughs> but you you chose not. I mean, it's it's kind of you know the old once a blue always a blue sort of thing. Oh well, you know? I think if if I dared to support anyone else, I think my granddad or my dad would have given me a good hiding. I don't. I didn't have that at all. I I became an Abyssonian by chance in a sense. Um, we'd moved to, to Liverpool uh, with my mum and dad um, in 1962. And the first thing we'd dad, get tickets for the match or go and go and see the match. And we went to Liverpool. The first available Saturday we had, we went to Liverpool and we couldn't get in. Of course, I was 11, gutted, blah, blah, blah. So my dad said, I'm not taking chances. Next week we'll get tickets. And he actually got tickets for Everton um, off a guy called Sid Moss, who was a garage owner opposite where we live. And uh, Sid Moss, because of his connections, the director of Liverpool, um, he, he actually managed to get us tickets in the Bullens Road end for the, the Everton game against Cardiff. Now, when you're 11 and you go to watch a team for the first time with the prospect of being a lifelong supporter, let's say, when they win 8-3, there is absolutely no doubt in your mind that you're not going to go down any other route than, than a route in blue and white. Okay. And that was the case. We beat Cardiff 8-3. Alex Young was just amazing. Um, and that was it. And I feel so sorry, but I have so much admiration for those fans who've never seen anything like that. You know, 
I, I have to say, in the foreseeable future, they're not likely to either. Terrible. Call me, call me delusional, Elton, but oh, I, I don't know, actually, because of the calibre of the teams that are left in the competition, but I feel like if we beat Crystal Palace in the quarterfinals... Oh, but yeah. Hang on, wait there. Have you put yourself on mute again? You'll have to run mute yourself. There we go. Was it a very familiar number there. That was called suspected spam. <laughs> no, forget the cup. Forget, forget it. It doesn't matter because okay. Let's say we pull one off against Crystal Palace in the cup. Yeah, there's the the attraction of going to Wembley, I suppose, to the semi. Um, against oh it'll be Liverpool wouldn't it yeah it will, um, it will be won't it without yeah. the oh it's written I'm just, I'm just amazed we, when they had the draw before the tie with Boreham Wood uh, the, the draw before the tie with Boreham Wood that I'm thinking it's going to be Liverpool <laughs> you know I'm waiting for it to come out you know Gareth Southgate picking the balls out only eight you know I'm thinking oh here we go Liverpool, Liverpool will play. Everton, oh yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, it didn't happen. That's that silly thinking. But um, you know, whoever we get in the semi. <sighs> no. Well, let's not look. That let's not look past Crystal Palace because they have beat us at Selhurst no. Park already this season and have. Give a really good account of themselves. I do like Crystal Palace out of the London teams. I do think I've got the most respect for Crystal Palace. Um, but on that note of the, the draw in the Boreham Wood game, I do just want to say um, I relocated my season ticket for the Boreham Wood game and they give me a ticket for the, the main stand. And I, so I'm going up, I'm going up the flight of stairs. And I didn't quite know where this, this, um, this ticket was so I just uh, I showed it to the steward. I went, you know, row S. Where am I best going for that? And he pointed to, in the direction of the the media area. He said, "You've got to go through the media, like round the media area, and you're just in front of them." So I literally squoze because obviously Goodison, it's really tight, compact. Squoze past, you know, all the people in the media area, like their bags down the uh, the aisle. And I've gone to me row, and it's a short row, about four or five seats. No one else was sat on that row but me. I had Kevin Campbell for talk sports over me right shoulder, and I had Barry Horn over me left shoulder. I'm not quite sure who he was commentating for. But I do have to say, I know it wasn't the greatest of games, um, and we should have saw it off a lot sooner than we did. But that will go down as one of the most memorable memorable games I've ever been to, purely because I had the running commentary in me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I essentially got the draw from the fella commentating for Talksport, um, and I I did I found it quite surprising that none of, of potential, <clears throat> essentially you know the big Premier League teams were drawn against each other. Um, so you've still got Chelsea, City. Liverpool in the mix, who no doubt will will have to beat it, it oh, if we have to get past Crystal Palace. So yeah, you're probably right. I should probably put my cup aspirations to bed, shouldn't I? No, I well, but don't have a distraction because the kind of players that we've got, <clears throat> I could see them not being up for a game at Tottenham. 
not been a pre-game at Palace or wherever you, you care to name. But the law of going to Wembley for a semi, whatever, you know, I could see that distracting them from the matter in hand, which is survival in the Premier League. That's 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 the most if we've got to if you said to me now, do you want to progress in the cup, even win the cup, or get relegated, no contest. Ditch the cup. Mm, yeah. You're not wrong. Now, moving on, I wanted to take some time about some sad take some time to talk about some sad news that came through today. Um, today being the eighth of March, about the passing of Gordon Lee. Oh yeah, former footballer uh, and manager, most notably to us, of course, for Everton between 1977 and 1981. Indeed, uh, I've heard a lot about that team in the in the 70s, Elton. But what were your encounters with Gordon like? Gordon. Gordon was very uncompromising. I've, I've just got a, a quote here from he used to manage Port Vale, you know. Mm-hmm. That's how he started in management. Yep. And they played West Ham in the cup one day. And Ron Greenwood said this afterwards. It was the most blatant, calculated intimidation I've ever seen anywhere in the world. Now, <laughs> this was Gordon. Gordon was about physical football. He he was about endurance. Um, he wasn't about uh, stars and flair. In fact, he once said, "You stars are in the sky, flares are on the bottom of your pants." <laughs> he wanted workaholics, basically. That that's because he was one. Mm-hmm. He had a running. Hate ship, I suppose, is one word. Oh, I hate the word hate. <laughs> With John Neal, the ex Brexham manager, passed away now. They were fullbacks at Aston Villa. Now, Gordon was like the, I'll crack anyone that comes anywhere near me. John Neal was more the, the sort of Jalmar Santos um, uh, Fullback, elegant, graceful, good passer, blah, 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 but not much for getting stuck in, which was Gordon's uh, trademark, really. So he became known through that as that kind of manager, as well as, um, you know, as well as a player. He once said, he once said to Mike Pedrick, they were, we were going to play Man United, and he said, Big danger to us, he said. He's that Steve Coppel, Steve Coppel, BA type, injure him physically. <laughs> How else do you, do, you, do you injure a person other than physically? But but that was Gordon. Very, I wouldn't have said an, an educated man, but having said that, uh, great personality, uh, great company, but sometimes odd, odd company. You, you think. How did he not know that, or you know that kind of thing? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we're coming back on a coach from on the coach from Ipswich. Now, this would be around about seventy-seven. Now, if I get some of the facts wrong, um, I apologise. But the gist of it is is absolutely what happened. I used to get you know, go on the team coaching, and back on the team coach, and we were coming back from Ipswich, 
And I think we'd won one nil. We won anyway. And the winning goal, whether it's one nil or two one, was scored by Duncan McKenzie. Now Gordon loved Duncan as a guy, which goes against popular beliefs. But he loved him as a bloke, but he was not Gordon's type of footballer. And on the way back, you know, I was sat with him, and he was saying, "Fucking do," and he swore a lot. So if I'm going to do Gordon the way he spoke, I'm afraid I'm going to have to swear a lot. But it's in context. No problem at and all. He, he said, you fucking, 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 Duncan McKenzie. Fucking hell. Fucking One of them, you know, just mumbling. Mm. And I said, excuse me, Gordon, but, he, you know, he has just scored the winner in, <laughs> in the game that we're coming back from. He said, you fucking not going to care that, are you? Because it was the most extraordinary goal. Because what happened, it was a quagmire of a pitch. Ball came over the top and stuck in the pitch in the mud, kind of. You know. And Duncan was running onto it. Mm-hmm. Yes, Duncan was running, running onto it, and he sort of ran past the ball. So he stopped, came back, and started dribbling away from the Ipswich goal. And then turned and then went running back towards the Ipswich goal. The mud playing a part in all this, all this stuff. And eventually the ball went over the line. Gordon didn't count that as a goal, <laughs> even though he won us the game. He, he, did, he, he wouldn't think, oh, well, Duncan, you know, maybe I'll, I'll let him off. But no, no. And there's another, same journey, sat with him, and he goes, he says, tell me this. I said, well, and he said, who would win? 10 Derry Caracott, Terry Darricott, or... 10 Andy King. 10 Terry Darracots played against 10 Andy King. Who would win? I know what he wanted me to say. I kind of opted out. Kind of thing. Fucking Terry Darracot. He gets stuck in. He does. He gets stuck in. <laughs> Andy, Andy King. Very, very funny guy. <laughs> Salad on the way back on this ghost trip. Someone said, do you want any uh, coleslaw? Gordon. And he said, what's Cole's law? <laughs> oh, one more, one more, Max. Well, I must tell you, I got to know him very, very well. Yeah. No, 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 no doubt about that. If I, I we had a, a dinner party one night at uh, Jimmy McGregor's house. You know, our ex-physio, Jimmy, he was also physio at Man United after that. And uh, th- there was a, a dinner party with wives. Uh, me and my good lady, Steve Coppel, and uh, and his lady, Steve Highway, and his, and Gordon, and his lady. Mm-hmm. So there was ten of us around the table. Gordon never stopped swearing, and the, the, <laughs> Jane, Steve, wife, every now and again, just sort of looked and sort of looked at me and said, "Is he always like this?" And I sort of went, "Yeah, he is actually." Uh, which takes me to this interview I did because I, I did know him awfully well and I found him marvellous company. I, I was doing this interview for him for Radio City mm-hmm. and it was after a game um, where we drew 3-3 with Wolves, if I remember rightly, Mick Buckley was one of our school. Anyway, we drew this game 3-3, great, you know, it was a great match of the day that night, probably the lead match on match of the day, you know. 
Yeah. But it was so entertaining, end-to-end, six goals in all. And I was doing a live interview with Gordon uh, for, um, down in the corridor by the dressing rooms, which going live on, on ra- live on Radio City. And we knew each other so well. It was like the microphone didn't exist. It was just like a normal chat that we'd be having, but it wasn't. It was, it was a live after-match reaction from the Everton manager, Gordon Lee. And it was 3-3, great game. And uh, he was like, yes, 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 I can see that. Yes, good game. Match of the day. But he was not overly enthusiastic. I said, Gordon is, um, what, what's the matter? You, you don't seem quite as excited as everybody else who's witnessed such a great game. And he said, well, it was pretty one team let me down on the fixed odds. I made a big mistake by saying, this is live, Radio City folks, I kid you not. Which one was that, Gordon? And he went, Sten fucking out, bastard Muir. Gordon Lee, oh, rest in peace. God. Lovely, lovely guy. Rest in peace. Now, An entertainer. Right. People- oh, but we didn't know it. <laughs> he didn't know he was so entertaining. <laughs> that was the thing about it. You know, Shanks, he knew, Bill Shankly, you know, because he said things and and he knew that it was funny, good, entertaining stuff. He knew that. Gordon didn't. (laughs) Lovely guy. Oh, yeah. So I've heard. Now, right, people will say typical Evertonians taking any opportunity to talk about their history, but I have heard about how he took us to a League Cup final um, against Villa, I believe, which you needed to... Well, actually, I, now, again, I, I think I'm right in saying Billy Bingham got us to the final and was sacked. I, Is that right? Did, did, did Gordon Lee take over for from... I think he took over from the semi, if I'm not mistaken. Well, OK, but it, we were virtually, you know... OK. Yeah, we were virtually yeah. there. So so that was that was um, Gordon Lee's only cup final um, in charge of Everton. So I, I had to, you know, I yeah. had to mention that. Well, we finished third in the league. Which year was that? Hang on, was that, that would be 78 or 79, was it? We finished third in the league. Something along those lines, because there were... Um, that was his best league finish, anyway. And, of course, we got to the semi-final of the FA Cup. To, um, and we played West Ham. Yeah, go on. I was just going to say, there were two top four finishes and two FA Cup semi-finals. Um, from what I know, there were some, you know, fabulous, fabulous players. Andy King, um, Bob Latchford, of course, Dave Thomas. Uh, he brought through a hell of a lot of lads who were to play in the 80s. Yeah. Graham Sharp. Well, he gave, uh, he bought, I mean, Gordon, I mean, if for nothing else, Everton is forever grateful that, that he bought um, Graham Sharp from Dumbarton. Mm-hmm. Um, or introduced Kevin Ratcliffe to first-team football as a very mediocre left-back who became one of the greatest centre-halves um, in British football history, basically. Strange, isn't it? Yeah. Is it fair to say that... Goal- oh, that's right. Sorry, if, if I was talking to him shortly after we'd been beaten by West Ham in that, the semi-final and Frank Lampard had scored the, uh, the winning goal yeah. for West Ham. Senior. I just said because we were talking, and you just went, "Fucking Frank Lampard." 
You wouldn't say that now, would you? <laughs> no. But Frank it, Lampard's senior. Of course, of course. Is it fair to say that Gordon laid the groundwork for Kendall's success, of which was to come in the following year? No, no, no. I, d- I don't think it is, actually. I, I can see b- because Howard took over. Um, but Howard had two very strange years with one or two funny decisions in the transfer market, apart from Andy Gray. Howard was the only person who wanted to sign Andy Gray, only because he failed his medical. And so, the, like, the, what the wages were in those days, I haven't got a clue, but, um, you know, I'm sure that the chairman, Mr Carter, would have said, well, hang on just a minute. <laughs> you know, we, we can't be paying this guy X thousand pound a week if He's not going to play because his his knee's gone, shattered. Yeah. And Howard just sort of said, we'll be all right. He'll be fine. He actually said as well, is that if anything, he'll be better in the dressing room than on the pitch. And again, he was kind of proved right. But Andy was fantastic on the pitch. And he was wonderful in the dressing room. Yeah. Uh, I think the the argument is there that, Andy Gray was the catalyst for the winner mentality that came into the club. Yes. Oh, got born, born winner, born winner. Yeah. Yeah. How many have we got today? Born winners. Don't. None. God. So, just on that note, I, I do. I want to take the opportunity to pass on the sympathies to. And best wishes to to Gordon Lee's family during. Oh, very much so. Yeah, you know yeah. it, it is it is always tough. Um, enduring a loss and grieving. Um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you just another brief one about about Gordon and how popular he was uh, with the Merseyside press. Um, you know, we could call ourselves a Rat Pack back then. Uh, you know, me from Radio City, whoever it was from Radio Merseyside, probably Bob Zerdy or Eddie Hemmings. You know, Collingwood, the Mail, John Keith, the Express, etc. And we were his first co- press conference in his office at Belfield. And uh, I forget who asked the question, but um, they said, well, okay, Gordon, you just got here, you know, first press conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who would you buy? And he sort of went, Louis Clements, Neil, <laughs> listed to Liverpool team. And we were like, can't say that. An Everton manager can't say that. And we all met up outside afterwards. I did an interview on tape with him, which which contained this, this remarkable um, list of players, all, all of whom, you know, played over the park. And, but everyone got together and said, look, we can't use this. It's going to damage him. Yeah. Um, oh, no. And he doesn't deserve that. So that was never used. I didn't use it on the, on the wireless. Um, the guys never put it in the in the papers because we took an instant liking to the guy, and we thought, well, we this is getting him off to the worst possible start if we lead on this. <laughs> you can see in a back page headline, Gordon Lee to turn Everton round. I would buy Liverpool. You can't do that. You can't say that. And he didn't realise. He didn't realise what he was saying. Yeah. 
I don't. That oh, one. Sorry, the, the the relevance of what he was saying. Yeah, no, of course that I that rarely would not happen today. <laughs> Needless to say, because most of what a manager sees is in a very controlled environment and is recorded live more often than not. But that yeah. that that trust between the media not to publish something like that that would not happen today, would it? No, good heavens above, no. But we, we, I like to think we were all nice guys. The Mersey Mafia, the Rat Pack, you know. Um, we, we we were nice guys. I mean, if, if someone got a really good story, maybe it was a bit controversial, then yeah, go with it. Mm. But if, if everyone had got the same story together, then there would be a huddle afterwards. Um to say, well, what are you using? What do you think was the best line? All right, let's do this. Mm-hmm. And they'd all agree. So virtually this, five tabloid papers the following morning, the same evidence story would be, or, or Liverpool's story, the same story would be on each of the back page of each of those papers. But I say, in this case, to a man, uh, we all said, look, let's just pretend he never, ever said it. Yeah. God to bless. this day. To this day, yeah, God, yeah, I think that that is the right decision and reflects very well on your part. I do like Mersey Mafia. I think I might use that going forward. That's a good. Yeah, one. sure. I'll give you Mike Ellis, the son, um, Chris James of the of the Daily Mirror, Colin Wood, the Daily Mail, John Express, John uh, Heath of the Express, Matt Darcy of the Star. Oh, with little gang we were. <laughs> I, I do want to... have away trips in Europe with Liverpool. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Good job I don't drink now. <laughs> I, do want to, I do want to ask you about those, those experiences working across print, uh, radio and television. But one of the things that I initially reached out to you about to arrange this podcast for is you like many other Evertonians particularly during you know these very low times that we've been going through and even more mm. so, even more so during the the managerial appointment have attended and been a part of Twitter spaces quite regularly which I think is a, a genius bit of technology because it's essentially yeah. I've been on a few myself. I've been invited on a few. And uh, I've also done a few where I've just thought, well, I've got something to say. I want to say it. You know? As I say, I think it's a genius bit of technology because it's essentially a radio football phone for everyone. I I, I don't understand the the technical side. I do not understand how we've managed to do this today. To me, it's a technological miracle. I'm a technophobe. But one of the things that you mentioned in a Twitter space that you were involved in very casually that not many people cottoned on to, which I, as soon as I heard it, I messaged you straight away and went, I want to talk to you about this. You mentioned that you had the opportunity to speak with Renus Mickles. I did. Indeed, I did. Yeah. 1988. To me is absolutely incredible. Just to give you a bit of context, when I was young... So if that name might have got it. Yeah, you 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 fill in because that, that name might go over a lot of people's heads. So it it will, and it shouldn't, because 
I'll, I'll just give you some context of how I became aware of the significance of Renus Mickles. So you said 62 when you went to watch Everton against Cardiff, you were what, around 11, 12 years old? Yeah. So when I was about that age, maybe a little bit older, I, you know, I used to be glued to all different types of sports programs on the telly. Uh, one of them being Sky Sports did a regular show called Football's Greatest, where they would talk about, you know, some of the greatest players of all time from different eras. They talk about Pele, yeah. Pele, Eusebio, George Best, Ronaldinho, Ronaldo, Brazilian Ronaldo, Lionel Messi, and they'd also do it about managers. And, you know, you can take your pick of the, of the great managers. But... Elmshun, et cetera. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So they did a show based on the career and life of Renus Mickles. And oh. so I've, I've always been inclined to... Uh, I've Throughout my life, I've always sort of romanticised Barcelona. Um, I've, I grew up believing and still maybe do arguably I think I'd pit Johan Cruyff up against Renus Mickles now because I the way I sort of processed it watching the story of Renus Mickles is Renus Mickles is Johan Cruyff before Johan Cruyff. No well Renus Mickles was was the field marshal of uh, the Dutch Renaissance in yep. football. Yep. And so Cruyff just to give Cruyff a bit of, was to... his was his was his general on the pitch. Just to give a, a just a bit of give a bit of context for the listeners, right? Renus Mickles spent mm-hmm. his entire playing career at Ajax. Um, he he managed many notable teams, including Ajax, of course, Barcelona, and the Netherlands. And if I'm not mistaken, Johan um, Renus Mickles was the one that gave Johan Cruyff his debut for Ajax. Yes, he did. But that would be 1972, I think. So. This was the scrawny kid, yeah. Scrawny kid couldn't play. <clears throat> so I, I remember hearing that in the program how Renus Mickles argued Johan Cruyff's case, as many people did believe it. You know, as you say, scrawny, not up to much, yeah. But Renus Mickles was is basically the godfather of modern football, uh, he uh, is indeed. And you You've can been print. doing your homework, haven't you? You can print that. You can print that. Renus Mikels, Renus, Renus Mikels was, I say, he was the architect. He laid the blueprint out for what became known as total football. Yep. And Cruyff was on exactly the same wavelength as, as him, having been brought up with him with Ajax. Uh, I'm talking about the World, the World Cup in 1974, where the Dutch were just a joy to watch. Um. And I say it was it was Mikel's philosophy, which was then adopted by Cruyff. And for those who don't know what total football is or, or haven't seen it, it's the closest I can possibly uh, you can think about now would be Man City, the way they play now, um, the way Barcelona played. In other words, Pep's disciples, mm-hmm. but Guardiola's biggest influence in his professional life was, was Johan Cruyff, who in turn, his biggest influence was Renus Mikel. So you get the chain now. You understand how this all became, as it did. And 
basically the total football. I mean, if you can get any, if anyone watching or what have you, gets um, one of the games, if possible, I have no idea whether it is, from the, the 74 World Cup, uh, where Holland um, were winning, got to the final, lost against Germany, shouldn't have done better side, etc. Um, and you'll see exactly what it is. It's this is why I laugh at systems nowadays because they were all great players, and I mean fantastic players. <clears throat> they were all comfortable on the ball. So if someone like centre half, centre half, Rue Kroll makes a run, someone slots in. Someone will just drop into the space that he was leaving. He didn't have to be told. It was instinct because they were clever players. And it was just a joy to watch. You think, what's he doing there? He's the left back. He's playing on the right wing. You know, it was phenomenal. And in the centre of it all is Cruyff. And he's gesticulating. Not all the time, because they were all great players. He was the greatest of the great, but they were all they were all great, great players. So it was just every now and again he'd say, whoosh, 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 whoosh. You see him on the pitch talking to him. All of a sudden, a pre-rehearsed move had come. And you know, the right back had come from a left-sided position to score with a diving header or something like that. Or then you get your conventional goal scorers like Johnny Rep. And it, it was just a joy to watch. And if you love football, you couldn't help but love that, that team, that philosophy. Um, it was superb. But getting back to the, the 74 World Cup final, um, uh, West Germany against Holland. Holland went in front after, uh, I think it was a minute, wasn't it? A minute, two minutes, uh, through a penalty. Not one German player touched the ball. Because Cruyff was just standing there. Watch it. It's fantastic. You can see him going. What? He was conducting the orchestra. He was conducting the orchestra. And eventually, he gets played in. Like a whippet, he's off. Gets brought down. Penalty. And uh, Holland go 1-0 up. And then, of course, the Germans, you know. They had to spoil it, didn't they? <laughs> they actually won. At the end, they won. Of the, day, the Germans always win. Yeah, they got a they got a penalty. Brightner, I think it was, who scored. And of course, the winning goal, inevitably, by one of the greatest goal scorers I've ever seen live, and that was Gerd Muller. But uh, the late great Gerd Muller. Oh, what a chief! I've just, I've just. I've always found in my career, I, I, this cropped up in a tweet um, not that long ago, in the last few weeks. My career, I found the bigger, the bigger they were, the nicer they were footballers. Really, uh, Paul Brightner. I was doing a game, a Liverpool game, um, against Bayern. Back in, in Bob Paisley's times, obviously. And I've said to him after the first leg, I said, look, you know, next next week when you when you play the return leg, if you, if you do all right, if you win, you know, can I do an interview with you? And he said, win, lose, or draw, no problem. Right. 
Johan Cruyff. Krauf. It is actually Krauf, if you want to be absolutely um, you know, correct in the pronunciation. Mm -hmm. um, when Liverpool played Barcelona in 1976, this two-legged affair, historic because Liverpool won thanks to a John Toshak goal in, in the Camp Nou. And the return leg was a week or two weeks later. Uh, I went down to interview uh, Krauf um, at the Holiday Inn, you know, by, by the library buildings. And um, <clears throat> so he eventually came down from his room. I phoned up to his room. Could you tell him we've arranged this? And he came down. Oh, yeah. This is Johan Cruyff. 1976, greatest player in the world then, bar none. Ah, great. So we, we did the interview. And I took, everyone remember the, the Radio City t-shirts that were going around at that time, 194 Radio City. And so I said, look, I, I can't pay you for your time or your trouble, but here's, here's a t-shirt for your little boy who, who was Jordi, Jordi Croix, of course, who, you know, went to play for Man United. Yeah. But I gave him, I gave him this T-shirt. You see. So he said, um, "One minute," and off he went. I thought, "Oh, that's it. That's the last I've seen of him." Kind of thing. And he was about. He, he did give me the impression he was going to try and come back, whether he would or he wouldn't. Who knows? So off he went. And um, anyway, he came back probably about two minutes later. Bear in mind, he had to go to his room in the lift, come down in the lift. And he came over and he said, um, and he brought me a, a Barcelona tie, which he signed and said, and this is for you. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Couldn't believe it. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's incredible. So I was, what, 24, 25 at the time? 25, I think. Wow. Yeah. That is incredible. I was just looking. I'm a little, I'm a little, it, it doesn't know me from Adam. Um, you know, I'm I'm just peddling my trade. You know, as a Radio City reporter, commentator, that was it. And the greatest player in the world, uh, you know, came and did that. Ah. <laughs> I've just looked. I just had because talking about Johan Cruyff, a quote sprung to mind that I just wanted to get correct when we were talking about the analogy of, of total football. Uh, this is a quote from Johan Cruyff: "Playing football is very simple." But playing simple football is the hardest thing there is. Oh, there you go. Because that's exactly what total football was. It was it was so simple, it's frightening. And that's why today, I, you know, I listen on Twitter, I join in on Twitter um, with, with some of the spaces. And well, what, what do you reckon he'll go for today? 4-2-4-4, Frank likes 4-3-3. I'm thinking, God, this is sad. I don't believe in formations. I believe in good players going out <clears throat> and just playing to the best of their abilities, not only physically with the ball or whatever, but also mentally. They know what to do. Good, they know what to do. Now, Venus Mickles, was this a one and only conversation or did you speak yes to no what one and only time um it was in 1988 it was before the semi-final uh between germany and holland of the european championships martin tyler god bless him 
uh, he knew very friendly with a Dutch commentator um, who was very close to Renus Mikels. And Martin said, how would you fancy an interview with Renus Mikels? But it'll have to be hush-hush because he's having a bit of a barney with the Dutch press at the moment. I said, phew, terrific. So he said, what about your hotel room? I said, yeah, that's fine. But yeah, on whatever time it was, say half seven at night, something like that, this guy, a big bald guy who's the Dutch commentator, sort of knocked on the door. He said, oh, Elton, I've met him before. Yeah, I did. And he said, Mr. Miko. I said, good. How are you? And he sat down. Uh, I, I just... I think ITV probably, I understand why, uh, probably only used about two minutes of, of that interview, you know, which were pertaining to the match that we were covering live the following day. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't resist the opportunity, as you, as you couldn't have resisted in your position now. Reince Meekles there. You just wanted, how great was Johan Coy? Tell me, where did you come up with this idea of, the the interchanging of positions on a football field and and whereas all you needed were great players uh, to fulfil your dream, you know. I said, "We this is what we were talking about." It was just it was epic. How how long? It, how long was the interview? Oh, twenty, probably twenty minutes, of which eighteen minutes, you know, hit the deck. Because there was no relevance to the game the following day, I admit that no problem. I, it was a, it was a learning curve for me, rather than a service for ITV. You it's, know, it was a learning curve for me. It's a podcast episode. I, I, I took full advantage. You don't get the you don't get the chance to speak to someone like that. No, too often. that that's a although in a sense I did because I, I was so close to to Bob Paisley. During his time at Liverpool, between '74 certainly and '77, '78, when I was at City, um, and he just—I just enjoyed listening to him. Yeah, and he was—he was in that—he was in—he was in the the Rina Smikels mold, you know. He was. He really was. I mean, ha anyone who could <clears throat> come up with the replacement for Kevin Keegan. In, in 77 after the European Cup win um, and bringing in Kenny Dalglish clever. but cleverer still was the adaptation of Ray Kennedy as you like a reserve team striker to play him left side of midfield I mean that was genius that was nothing more nothing less it was genius mm. now sp speaking about those those great influences on the game of football. I remember during our first conversation on the podcast, you talked about producing a radio show for Bill Shankly later on. Um, yeah, I did. I believe yeah, I did. later on in his career or, or later on in his life. No, it, I, well, hang on, I'll tell you when it was. It was nineteen. It was the year was nineteen seventy four, and Radio City had just started up. October the twenty first, nineteen seventy four. That's when Radio City began. Yeah. And Terry Smith, who was our um, our MD, uh, future manager, uh, future director of Liverpool, uh, and a real he was the driving force behind Radio City, who sadly passed away 
not too long ago, very, very sad. And um, Terry had this idea that the Shanks, who just retired, of course, after the 74 Cup final, mm -hmm. should do a series of chat shows for, for, for Radio City. Because everyone went, are you sure? You know, he, he said, no, it will be okay. And I've chat with Bill and he wants to do it. Okay. The guy who, who produced, I would say, 99.9% .9 of, of Shanks' um, chat shows, um, which were recorded between, say, 10 and 12 on a Saturday morning and went out probably for an hour or an hour and a half at one o'clock. Um, they had to be recorded because you didn't know what was going to happen, you know. Yeah. You know, and also we had a lawyer there just in case something was said, you know, that, that would contravene the law of slander or, you know, libel. Yeah. Um, so, yes, this happened, but Wally Scott was, was Shanks's producer. But one week, he, he, Wally <laughs> said to me, oh, he said, listen, I've had enough. I've had enough of him for the moment. He said, do you mind producing? I'm taking the day off. I'm taking the week off. Would you mind producing Shanti's show on Saturday. I said, yeah, sure. Who, who, who have you lined up as the guest? And he said, Lulu, you know, the singer. I said, yeah, yeah, okay. okay. Yeah, we'll do that. And I, so I did produce one Shankly show, but the, the real brain behind the, whole, the entire operation there, I say the driving force of Terry Smith, but the brain behind it all, the one who put it together, took out the stuff that would offend people, uh, was Wally. Wally Scott, of oh. course, uh, Billy Butler, Wally Scott, the Wally Scott. I remember uh, you saying, I believe it was the first guest that Shanks had on his radio show was Harold Wilson. Uh, Correct. He asked Harold Wilson the, quest, the question, who's the first true socialist? He said, Jesus, right. Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, Wilson actually, Wilson actually said, mm, mm, mm. would it be Ramsey McDonald, Bill? And Bill said, oh, Jesus Christ. But it, it was funny because I, I was, you know, I, I was stood outside while he was in the, the production booth, you know, talking to him. And um, I, I was stood outside. And when he finished, of course, me being the football commentator, you know, someone who he thought could talk football, um, he comes, came, made a beeline for me and sort of went, oh, son. He tried to steal my thunder. <laughs> <laughs> the prime minister. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. He, he, he's something else. Yeah, so I've heard from the story. Now, just I think to to round up the podcast, I think it's selfish. Sure. Really. It's it's selfish, really. But given the position that I'm currently in in my career, like. I'm very fortunate and very blessed. I've worked to get in the position that I am, and I've had this lucky break essentially. Where, as I said, I'm, I'm writing print for one of the, the the most read magazine in sports magazine in the country, and I'm also working as a, a producer for for Radio Merseyside freelance, of course. Now, how did you find the differences between working print? Working in radio, and then of course, well, I worked. I worked for a, a newspaper called the Liverpool Weekly News for four years, which was um, 
obviously a regional paper. It came out once a week on a Thursday. But actually, it was quite popular, particularly in the south end of the city, Garston, around there. But it, it sold well. It really did sell well. Um, but I, I'd always hankered for radio and our television. I probably thought was a step too, step too far. But I certainly, you know, fancied um, radio. But when I first went to to the Weekly News, that would be 1970, there was only radio Merseyside, probably half a dozen, I don't know, maybe half a dozen, 10, 12 BBC local radio stations all over. So you think, well, crikey, which one could I possibly target? In a few years, once I'd done my, you know, my groundwork at, uh, at the Weekly News, um, and then three years after that, all of a sudden came the explosion of independent radio. They were all over the place. The independent radio stations were cropping up. So again, I targeted Radio City. I've done a bit like yourself. I did a little bit of Radio Merseyside. I was sort of re sat alongside Bob Zerdia, you know, the talking chin, um, reading out the racing results. I did the odd report from on South Liverpool from the, the Northern Premier League as it was then. Um, so I, I, I got used to it a little bit, um, uh, Radio Merseyside. But then when the city opportunity came up, I just applied. Because I'd known that Eddie Hemmings had turned it down. Because I was in the Radio Merseyside offices when Eddie Hemmings phoned the news editor of Radio City, David Maker, and said, I've decided to stay at Radio Merseyside. Now, Maker was, was furious. Uh, but I thought, whoops. Now, this was this would be early second, maybe first week in October 1974. In other words, City were going on air in, in on October the 21st. Mm -hmm. Right, woof. This is this is this is a blessing. This is this is this is what I've been dreaming of. So I literally left Radio Mersey, went straight to Radio City. <laughs> I say knocked on the door, but you know what I mean. I went, asked to speak to Mr. Maker. And I did. And I told him exactly what had happened. And I said, Eddie Hemmings can't do it. I said, I'm your man. No question. And I had a voice test, etc. Don't sound like I do now, but even still. Yeah, well, it's okay. And of course, the um, the sports editor, who was intact by then, was Wally. And uh, of course, Wally and I knew each other anyway, so he was quite happy to take me under his wing mm -hmm. and have me as his number two, as it were. There was only two of us in the sports department. We were helped along the way by some notable people, um, none more so than Paul Davis. Uh, who retired from ITN in this past 12 months. Um, but yeah, I mean, quite, but that's that story of listening to Eddie Hemming's conversation or his end of the conversation, um, and then high turning it to Radio City. That was the uh, it was absolutely, that's how it happened. That's exactly how it happened. That was the opportunity. Now, I know previously, You've described you've described yourself as 
a technophobe. But oh yeah, obviously, I think to, to be in of any success, any chance of being a success, a, a radio station, arguably, I don't know. I want you to paint that picture for me. Needs to have you know a modern technology for the times in order to broadcast out to its audiences. Now you talked about a bit about a, a you know a production booth. I know you were predominantly a reporter and a commentator, but what was it like actually inside the station? What was you know some notable experiences or the time? Right, okay. I I can we come from. Um, it was Radio City in its infancy was fantastic because everyone was learning apart from a few Nick Pollard. Um, uh, who came from Radio Merseyside, who turned out to be arguably the best, um, the best journalist producer of, of such programs in in television over the past fifty years. You know, no question about that. Um, and the chief engineer, called Peter Duncan, who was building. I mean, you go in to do an early broadcast or a news bulletin or whatever. And they'd be building the, the a studio around you. It was it was incredible, but the camaraderie uh, at that time amongst all of us who were you know uh, radio, radio radio's new kids on the block at this this station that no one had ever heard of Radio City. Oh, it was super! It really was technically totally over my head. Uh, didn't have a clue. It would be well. You know, you want to speak, you push that button up and your microphone will be on. Yeah. That was about it. I mean, Wally and I, our first midweek sports special um, involved a huge bit of tape with various interviews on. And Wally was presenting the show, and I had an interview. We had a couple of studio guests who were Everton A-teamers. Young McBride was one. I can't remember the other one. Um, and we had this with, with we had an interview on the tape on this big tape, big reel to reel thing. Was we had an interview with Billy Little, um, one I'd done quite a long one with Steve Koppel, who was a trammer at the time, and the, there were others. Now, at one point, while he was queuing queuing in, you know, halfway through the tape, a five minute interview or whatever on the, on the tape. And he's and he cue me like that to, to press the button to start the tape. So when he stopped finished talking, the tape with let's say Billy Little on, on would, would come in. And um <laughs> I must have pressed the wrong button to fast forward or what and the tape just went like into the air. And I was horrified. And Wally looked at me. He'd gone white, totally white. And so he just had to keep rabbiting on. While I was, it was hopeless. We just had to call, we just had to, you know, due to technical issues, I'm afraid uh, we're going to have to cut short this first edition of Radio City uh, Midweek Supper Special um, until the next time goodbye, because the tape was all over the studio. <laughs> I think that's probably was probably the start of my complete incompetence when it comes to anything technical. 
Uh, I was frightened of it. I've been frightened of it ever since then. So I, I don't, I, I really don't get involved. I mean, I see, I, I remember I, when I did a couple of years at Century Radio around about uh, 2000. Um, I mean, there's a producer sat opposite me, Dave Heen, who was pressing these buttons. And he said, you're a bit privileged, you know. I said, well, why is that? He said, well, all the other presenters, you know, self drive the, the desk themselves. I said, well, you, you might think I'm privileged. I said, but you're even luckier because if that was the case, I wouldn't be here, baby. <laughs> no chance. Just let me talk. That's that's all. Let me talk. Don't ask me to do things and yeah. Was that was that always your aspiration then? Essentially to just talk about sports and report uh, and essentially i think is it fair to say you know you just wanted to be a journalist at the heart of it well yeah it eventually it eventually uh, that eventually came to pass yes uh, i was working as a porter at broad green hospital going nowhere really in life although i thoroughly enjoyed that experience wonderful experience um and I was just walking down the corridor one day, and I, and I saw there was a newsstand there, you know, where people bought, well, not just a newsstand, but where they bought grapes, but some of their visiting or flowers or whatever. And there was Liverpool Weekly News. I thought, well, interesting. So I bought a copy of this paper. Um, never heard of it before. And uh, anyway, I went back to the porter's room, and I, you know, started reading. It was about 10 pages of sports. I thought, wow, this is not maybe I should be a journalist and then work on this paper. That'd be great. Really, when I got home, I drafted a letter out to the, the managing director uh, based in Witness, Ron Carrington, name was. And I got a, almost like return of post, I got this, can you come for an interview on Thursday? You know, something like that. This, this was say Monday, can you come for an interview on Thursday? Rang up the office poems to Carrington on Thursday he said um, you know job interview basically and the secretary said yes yeah, I said how would three o'clock two years yeah fine so I went and I, I don't know what we spoke about to be honest um, I can't remember at all what we spoke about but I know by Friday afternoon I got the job nice <laughs> unbelievable and the rest is history. <sighs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Listen, Elton, we've been speaking for well over an hour now, and you know, oh, it's a lot longer than that. Yeah. It's you know. about an hour and a half. I told you, if I was pressing buttons like you, forget it. This wouldn't happen. <laughs> but I'm not. I'm just sat at home comfortably, waiting for to watch some football. It's been a very enjoyable way of passing a bit of time. Uh, and thank you for inviting me once again. Listen, the pledge is mine. Honestly, you are thoroughly one of the you know podcast guests that I do enjoy speaking to most, just simply because of your experiences and those stories. And as I say, I literally I can't thank you enough for your, your kind words and, and your advice um, throughout the earlier part of my career. Um, and like I always say, um, you're more than welcome to come on the podcast anytime you'd like. Um, and if anything does come up, if you casually 
you know, slip into a conversation, casually mention in a Twitter space that you've spoken to Franz Beckenbauer. Uh, I'll be sure to message you and him. <laughs> I have actually spoken to Franz Beckenbauer, but it was very, very brief conversation, I have to tell you. Go on, let's finish. The- thinking, can, you do, can you do an interview? I didn't say Herr Beckenbauer, but maybe I should. And he just said, yes, I will do it in German. And he pissed off. Uh, listen, Elton, <laughs> like I say, mate, I, I genuinely at, at this point I would consider you a friend because of the advice that you've given me and, and the fact that you you know you're always available. For it's you. a pleasure. It's a pleasure. I just want to say um thank you. Um I look forward to the next time that we do this and uh God bless, take care. And you too, Max. All the best. <laughs>